Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. The performance rankings, you had to be there, crappy quiz and a slight tangent. World Cup is growing on me. (laughs) (laughs) As a name. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Turning back to football, and it's been a wild four or five days uh, on and off the field. I'm delighted to say Nada Manua is with us to talk to us a bit about what is going on with the managerial merry-go-round. Nada, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Um, what's the best available job in the Premier League at the moment if you're a, an aspiring manager oh, oh, oh. who believes you can have an impact? Oh, my goodness. Um I don't know. I think given the fact that if I had to make these changes this late in the season, it maybe suggests that things aren't as good as they need to be. And then you could say maybe like Chelsea, the team that have great aspirations of winning things going forward, but we don't even know what they look like next season. And then the Spurs element as well. How does that look? And then Leicester City, they're they're far better in theory, the football club than where they're at at this moment position wise. So you need to know that they're going to be in the Premier League to be optimistic and think that's a good job. So ultimately all three of them are tough, tough situations to come into. So, I don't know. I think it's a good question. The the Chelsea situation, just to, to start with that one, where they they aren't quite clear what they're trying to do at a corporate level, and that's having an impact on the number of players they've signed. We're told today that Chelsea can't have their first team change in the changing room at the same time because the room isn't big enough. Is that credible? Is that is that a, is that a real thing, do you think? Um, I think it could be a real thing because most first-team change rooms probably house around 25 people. So for them, they probably have a few more. Sorry, they have more than that. And they've got the right supplementary young players that come through as well. So I do believe there is a chance that that is true. And that is a bit awkward because usually when somebody comes, it's because someone else has left. But they've got such a large amount of signers at this moment in time that that's the unfortunate situation for them. And it's just a shame that for some people, you know the writing's on the wall when you're the person that can't change first. But that's that's the way football goes, I, I guess. Um, so there is a chance that could be real. And they've played themselves into that situation. But then what I'd say about Chelsea as well, they've also got a dressing room for people who go on loan who aren't going to play for the first team. Um, people who are, don't have ambitions of that and so on and so forth. So they do have a lot of players. And it's just crazy that now they've got too many players because volume and signings for Chelsea tends to be a standard thing, to be honest. Not great for team spirit slash morale slash togetherness or I've got your back. It's like, oh, hang on, that you, you're in my seat. Yeah, um, I suppose that's the thing. If you, were, if you were there and somebody new came in and they took your seat, I think that's a bigger offence than, say, you going on loan somewhere and coming back and seeing someone's seat. Someone's now in your seat. And team spirit is one of those, like, it matters more so when things aren't going well because when things are going well, everybody's happy, everybody's in a position and this sort of locker room situation, you could potentially have it as more of a joke. It's like, oh gosh, I can't believe you took my seat. Oh, I'm just going to go and change out here. But all of a sudden when the team's not winning and you're not playing, it's actually a huge insult. So I think you've made a good point about team morale, but then that's ultimately the way that most teams would be if they weren't winning too many games. Can that turn toxic pretty quickly, Nathan? Because let's be honest, like, there's a lot of egos in, in, in any football dressing room, especially that, that Chelsea one with the names you see. Um, and I know you, when you, you were at Queen's Park Rangers when there were a lot of players on that squad. And it, it's not exactly a similar situation, but it's not dissimilar either. Is that a difficult thing over time? Does, does a bit of toxicity build up? Um, I think it can do. But I think the way that recruitment's done now, like I think they try and find people who'd be disappointed if they're not playing, but not necessarily find people 
who would spread that disappointment and take something away from the team. Like I think clubs are getting better at sort of removing that one toxic person because it's fair enough that, you know, someone can be down and negative if they're not playing and so on. But do they bring more people with them? Do they make it sort of, you know, the us versus them? Do they create a little group against the manager? Not every club is in that situation where that's the case. That's why I went through a little bit at QPR. And to be fair, Man City and other places as well. But I think it's about recruiting the people as well as just the players. Because, you know, at the very top, everybody wants to play and everyone believes that they can play. So if people are happy to walk into training ground, know they're not playing. I think it misses the point. But it's just about how do they react from there. Because for some, they revert to hard work. But if they've got the wrong type of person, then before you know it, they, re- they decide to choose destruction. And as a consequence, you know, managers end up potentially losing their jobs and there's a real sort of sad feeling when you arrive at the training ground, which shouldn't be the case when you're playing, uh, or sorry, when you've got one of the best jobs in the world. Are teams getting better at finding out about the character of, of players or, like, you, you kind of have to go back to underage coaches to get that type of information and even then they need to trust you to tell you the truth about somebody. Actually, you know what, he's a brilliant footballer but he's, he can be a bit of an asshole sometimes. Um, how, how, do you, how do you scout that information, the kind of intangibles? Um, so, firstly, I think this has happened for a long time but there's a lot of, like, reference work. You know, a manager might speak to another manager, they'll speak to other members of the football club, they'll ask players to speak to their teammates and also like international teammates and the like. And there is quite a lot of work that goes into it. You know, a lot of the scouting departments, it's more than just a case of seeing how somebody performs at a World Cup and deciding, well, that skill set is going to work for us. But then I think the where it falls down, and this is a big divide between a manager signing a player and a football club signing a player, because the manager might just know someone and like someone, but they know about their flaws. Whereas for the team themselves, they're thinking about signing someone that's going to be there for four or five, six years. So they need it to fall in line with the values of the football club. But when the manager gets final say and say first option, whoever he wants, then sometimes they'll just go down that road. But then all of a sudden, what happens when the man- when the player that the manager signs is now left in a club where the manager's left? Are they going to be as productive and positive as somebody who was signed in the bigger picture who wants to play for the club as opposed to the manager themselves? So I think there is research that is there. They do speak to absolutely everyone. And if Man City are the example that I can you know reference pretty well, but they do years worth of research into players not just on the field stuff but off the field stuff so they know what the type of person is when they walk into the football club because they know that ultimately to be successful it only takes one or two people going in the wrong direction for everything to fall apart and for them it seems like overall overall I stress overall because there've obviously been one or two exceptions overall they've done pretty well with that I'd say I feel a little bit sorry for Graham Potter in the, in the way it's ended, but a lot of people kind of saw that the writing on the wall, they, they thought this was going to be a difficult position. I was fascinated later yesterday to, to read about um, these this, this idea that Todd Bowley and Baghdad Iqbali, the Chelsea co-owners, have concerns about someone like Julian Nagelsmann, who's only 35, because of his age. Would that be an issue in a dressing room that, that for Chelsea players that might look around and say, well, he's 35, so does that take away some of the, the authority that, that he might have? Um, I think the authority will come if he's being supported by the board and being supported by the senior players within the group because the age itself, you know, I've seen managers who are 50, 60 years of age who don't have the, any sort of authority over players as well because they're just a little bit soft and they don't have the backing of the board themselves. So when they come in, they're essentially just a puppet as opposed to being somebody who can dictate what the way the direction that the club's going to be going in. So I think for Nagelsmann, yes, he's 35, but we know we know him already because of two jobs that he's already done. And, you know, this this contentious sacking at uh, Bayern Munich, but you still had them on, for, I think, for a treble. So he's clearly not the worst manager in the world. And his age, you know, it might be a factor. But when he walks in there as a player, for me, 
you always see how they carry themselves. You see the training sessions they put forward. You see the ideas that they want to implement, and you see whether they're able to make their vision come into reality by the way that they coach you as a player and as a team. And if they're doing that well, you never really get so concerned about the age that they're at because, you know, there are older managers who are failing. So, no, let's not necessarily say somebody will fail because they are young. In the same way that I think for Potter, he was always in a tough position because people were doubting him before he'd even started working there because he said, well, he's not been here, he's not been there. Well, realistically, if the players that they have are really good professionals, then does the history of the manager matter? Or is it more a case of trying to instill or listen to what he's saying to try and get them to play how he wants? And as a consequence, you know, a lot of people expected him to fail, which I think is quite a tough position to be in. And I think his role and his moment in football history was very important because that blueprint in terms of going through the ranks and then arriving at a club like that now feels that a little bit further away for the next person's going to try and do it because from when they arrive, they'll expect you to fail now, just like Graham Potter did. And that's tough because at the end of the day, they haven't been great. But you look at the last game against Aston Villa, which they lost, and they had enough chances to win the game but still they lose. So now he's lost his job and maybe has a big reaction to that game. It's not the worst football that's ever been seen. And on a different day, they probably win the game, but because they miss chances, before you know it, he's finding his, find his way out of Chelsea. We were talking a bit about this in, in the build-up to the Villa game and the, the aftermath. Arteta went through difficult periods, but learned on the job and had the backing of the entire operation. There was definitely noise around Arteta that potentially he was going to be in trouble, but the the Cronkies and the the relevant people squashed it pretty quickly and the noise disappeared. It just feels like at Chelsea they don't really know how to manage the media and any of the noise around it and um it it doesn't really feel like they know what they're doing and that kind of transmitted itself a little bit to Potter having too many players. Yeah. Um I would say that's fair. I think the way that they did the transfer business last summer is a bit different to how they did it in January and I think they've got two sort of director-type roles which have come in there, which are going to try and make things a bit simpler. But ultimately, I think some of the owners who are within the um, football club now, this is all very new to them. Some of the other sports that they're in are different. But as I say, this is new, so they need as much sort of like advice and guidance as they can find. And I think there are one or two people who are capable of helping them make those decisions going forward now. But I was finding out yesterday, interestingly, so Todd Bowley feels like he's the front and centre of it all. But... He doesn't make those big decisions. There are other people because he's a part of three, I think, that do make those calls. But he's just the most visible one. I think if the other two people turned up, none of us would really know who they are. But I think in time, they'll learn to understand that visibility is a big thing within football and sort of explaining decisions and why a club's doing this and why a club's doing that to make it seem like you really have a true grasp of what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, they must have some sort of idea. So they're not managing this moment very well at all but it's still very early within their tenureship. And what I would say was we're always wondering when he would get sacked because that kind of sets the tone for what's to come next. And they don't want to, it didn't seem to me like they wanted to be like uh, Abramovich was, whereby if you didn't win a trophy out, you go. But still this performance has led to them being in the spot. And what I would say is a comparison for Arteta, in my opinion, the fact that Arteta played a lot of games for Arsenal meant that he probably was given more time than say someone else would have done when you look at the likes of Emery and the like, who didn't do that bad a job there. But for Arteta, because the club is essentially in his heart as such, and he can explain to the fans and to people what it actually means and what he's trying to go for before you know he's given time. And in times leading to them potentially winning the Premier League this season. So I think every situation is slightly different, it unfortunately. Is, it is. It's, it's a fair point. And he also had the kind of uh, the impact of having worked under Pep as part of his CV so he's been at a super club he knows what it takes he's been in, involved in match day when, when Potter came out and said he, 
never been to a Champions League game, it was like, maybe don't say that. You don't have to tell us all your truth all the time. There's there's bits that you can keep back a little bit and that that's private between you and let's wait and see what happens because he's actually doing okay in the Champions League, it turns out. You know, they've, they've got Real Madrid and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Can I ask you, Brendan Rodgers isn't getting linked with the Spurs job at the moment. He's not getting linked with the Chelsea job even though he, he has um, a track record at the club and for me that doesn't make that much sense. Is there something that we don't really understand is, is is are there bad reports coming from players or something that's preventing owners from going shopping with Brendan Rodgers mm, that's a good question because I did I did wonder that myself and having been someone you know that he's played that he's coached Liverpool and he did a pretty good job there obviously didn't necessarily end the way that he w- would have wanted it to end and then he's won an FA Cup with uh, with Leicester City came close to getting them in the Champions League, you'd think his stock would be quite high, but unfortunately, I think the way that their season's going at this moment in time just means that he's not being spoken about in the way, say, he was 18 months ago when he's being linked with the like Man United job and things like that. But I think, as we all know ourselves, those initial reports about who's linked and so on and so forth, they're so early that most of them like tend to miss the mark unless the appointment happens instantly, it misses the mark. Whereas for now, I'm getting a sort of vibe that maybe one or two of these club situations will be fully dealt with coming this summer, and I think once he's had some time away, I think you might see his name start appearing more there and they can probably understand that he's got a more clearer picture in terms of what he wants to achieve and how he believes he can help the club um, achieve their own objectives as well. So I think he'll be in work next season. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was for um, maybe Spurs, I think. That's the way I'm thinking at this moment in time. But yeah, for now, I think most of those teams are just looking for some element of just like short-term stability. And then when the summer comes, just kick in with a long-term goal. And I think Brendan Rodgers could definitely do that. that but I suppose the likes of Rodgers has to wait and see. Like We've, we've talked about the, the Harry Kane situation, whether or not he's still going to be there next season, but also whether or not Spurs get top four. So like, is someone like Brendan Rodgers looking at what's happening at, in North London and thinking, well, I wouldn't mind waiting and seeing at the end of the season. But it's a risky one as well, Liam, because jobs might not be available. Yeah, exactly. You you just you really don't know, but I think whoever's going to be coming in there in the summer might have a little idea, like at this point, that they could be potentially being linked, and they might hope and wish that they make the top four and that, that Harry Kane stays and the like. But the fact is, the job is still an enticing job. I think if everything was solely dependent on that, then we'd have issues because teams do not qualify for the Champions League every year, and for some of these big clubs who are striving to be successful, there are two sides to this because some people say, oh, why would Bellingham go to Liverpool if they don't qualify for the Champions League, so on and so forth? Well, the answer is because it's Liverpool. And secondly to that, you can either come in at a point where a club is qualified for the Champions League or you come in and it's like, the project now is to get us back to where we were. The project now is to make us great. And I think that's just as enticing for some managers and players than say what people would like to believe. So... I think for Brendan Rodgers, if it ends up that they don't qualify for the Champions League and he's linked with there and he gets a chance to go, he'll genuinely believe he can go there and help them qualify for the Champions League and win a trophy for the first time, I think, in 15, 16 years. So I don't think that stuff is as conditional as we maybe think. And you made a good point, though. At the end of the day, work is work. So if you can find it, then there's no reason to turn it down, is there? Uh, uh, Brendan Rodgers feels a little bit to me like in the Eddie Howe uh, territory where... How took such a long period of time out of football and waited and waited and waited and waited and the situation that he, he comes back into in, in Newcastle in a way is, is perfect. But he did take a team down 
and managed to get that off his CV in a way, Leicester aren't going to go down yet. And if they do, it now won't officially be Brendan Rodgers' fault or responsibility. So maybe there just needs to be a little bit where his reputation uh, gets less uh, imprisoned by the moment. And we look back on, you know, bringing a Liverpool team from a desperate situation to a point where they were very close to winning a title. Winning a title with Celtic, you know, Champions League football and all that, that understanding of, of, of that. And I just do, I agree with you. I think it might actually be better for him if Harry Kane is gone and they're not in the Champions League next season because then he can be the one who turns that situation around. Um, one last question about Arsenal and the way things are going at the moment. Um, the win at the weekend was really important because you've seen what Manchester City have done and it's against a Liverpool team and there's a big statement for you and you just come out and you just do your business. That, In a way, it's almost one of the most impressive Arsenal performances that we've seen. Yeah, it certainly was. But then I think to a certain extent, that's more so with us from the outside overreacting to the game that kicks off so early because like, all the pressure's now on Arsenal. But they still had a five-point lead. You know, even if they would have uh, drawn that game, then at the end of the day, there's still, you know, that six-point gap or whatever. So I wouldn't... It's, it, let's just say it makes a big deal because a lot of noise has been made about, oh, they would have asked Arteta before the game, what do you think after seeing that first game? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? But ultimately, the the game, oh, sorry, the title, it's in their hands. They can... Man City can win every game this season in the Premier League that's left and still lose the title. That says a lot about how good Arsenal have been. And I think for Arsenal, they've been fantastic. I think they've won their last five, six league games in a row. And to a certain extent at times, they've won them quite comfortably. And that game there, seeing Gabriel Jesus back playing through the middle, scoring two goals, the noise at uh, the Emirates in terms of the crowd going off, like they know there's a good feeling there and they're so, so close to the end. And watching Man City win is always going to be stressful. But at the end of the day, one of the sides is going to watch, have to watch the other team win anyway. So it makes you think, well, it's this must-win game is now a must-win game now. Like nothing really changes from that standpoint. But it's a great reaction. The fans saw it. 60,000 fans saw them play well, score four goals and just give that energy back and just disregard what came before. And that's what they need to do, I think, through now the end of the season if they want to win the title. Barring that game against City at the end of April, just win your games and you don't have to worry about what Man City are doing. And that's a great position to be in at this time of year because most of the teams don't have that luxury. Nidham is a final one for me. Uh, as a defender, you'd have come across uh, a lot of strikers who have engaged in, in dark arts over the years and... and we were talking this morning on the show about Harry Kane and, and the reaction to the De Curry incident last night where he goes down like a sack of spuds, really. He goes down quite easily, albeit it probably was a red card. Um, what's, what's your take on, on that, those Kane incidents where he, where he appears to go down quite easily? And also, I guess over here it's difficult for us. Like, the English media reaction, is it different? Is Harry Kane treated differently because he is the England captain? Um Perhaps a little bit, yeah. I think there are certain individuals, say pundits and so on, who might sort of say, you know, that's that's a bit soft, but they're trying not to go too hard because it is Harry Kane. And for me, that's his game. Like, he wins so many free kicks and causes so much of a stir on the field. But it's the gamesmanship that, gamesmanship that's he's, that he's learned across the years. And at the end of the day, if we want it to stop, it's down to the referees because, you know, Jack Grealish gets a lot of grief for winning so many free kicks. Harry Kane feels like he wins just as many, and it's usually really soft things. And like Harry's a, is a big guy, but he wins so many free kicks, and it's through just little things, little nudges, slowing down so somebody like pushes him over and stuff. And that's the way he plays the game. And it's not surprised that say he went down when he was touching the face, but 
that's just as I say that that's who it is, and he can be frustrated by it. And for me, he went down, but the just like to see him just get back up because if it's a red, it's a red. The ref would have seen it. The video assistant referee would have seen it as well, and they wouldn't have unlikely changed the outcome mm. because he didn't stay down. So that's who he is. I think people have to get used to it. And I think a lot of people do like Harry Kane, so they do try and give him an element of the benefit of the doubt, say, oh, he went down easy, but it's still a red card. But unfortunately, this is the way football is. This is the way it's refereed, and this is how he plays the game. He's obviously England's top goal scorer, top goal scorer for Spurs, so he's very much revered. So, listen, it's not going to change anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> Nadim, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers, thank you. OCB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.